This episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day is sponsored by Secret Spa, all your favourite beauty and wellness treatments at home. Where the salon fails, Secret Spa can deliver with appointments available every day from 7am to 10pm. And the best thing is you can book just a few hours in advance. It's perfect for people like me who can't squeeze their treatments into their working day. There's none of the hassle of travelling. You get to do it all in the comfort of your own home. If you're a mum, you can have it while your kids are sleeping next door. If, like me, you're a cat owner, you can have it with your cat purring nearby. There's a range of treatments. Secret Spa offers everything from massage, facials, nails, waxing, lashes and brows. You can book as many treatments as you like in one appointment and you can be assured that all the therapists of excellent quality because Secret Spa meets and tests every single one personally and I can attest to that. I had a manicure from Secret Spa. The lovely Pam came and made my hands look amazing. So thank you very much Secret Spa. Secret Spa now covers all of London and Manchester and for an exclusive 15% off your first booking, use the code HOWTOFAIL, all one word, on Secret Spa's mobile app or at secretspa.co.uk. Thank you very much to Secret Spa. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. My guest this week has many claims to fame. One of them is that he inspired a 162% spike in internet searches for religious porn and a 25% increase in sales of canned gin and tonic after his heart-rending, gut-wrenching, gin-swilling performance as the hot priest in Fleabag. But beyond the dog collar, Andrew Scott has been a highly acclaimed actor on stage and screen for many years, winning both a Laurence Olivier Award and a BAFTA for his efforts. In fact, he got nominated for another award as I was writing this introduction, a Golden Globe, no less. It's a long way from one of his first roles as an unnamed corpse on the beach in Steven Spielberg's Second World War epic, Saving Private Ryan, since then, he's played Moriarty alongside Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock on TV, starred in Pride on the big screen, and taken on Hamlet at the Almeida. More recently, he appeared in 1917, directed by Sam Mendes, and it was announced that he'd be playing the psychopathic Tom Ripley in a new adaptation of Patricia Highsmith's famous novels, a casting decision that I, for one, believe is pure genius. One journalist wrote earlier this year that Scott's signature as an actor is to unsettle you. And it's true that you never know quite what he's going to do next, which makes him an enticing prospect as an interviewee. He once said that, I think the mark of a proper adult is someone who is really able to say with confidence, I don't know. It's to ask questions without hope of an answer. Andrew Scott, welcome to How to Fail. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> well, you're among friends here if you're asking questions and don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought that as much. I do feel comforted by that. Do you actually think that growing older, leading on from that, is a kind of act of unlearning, like all the social conditioning that you've grown up with so that you can become playful again? Oh my God. I mean, absolutely. I do. One of my favorite quotes is from Picasso, who says, I spent my whole life trying to paint like a child. I think that's really true as an artist. And I think it's really true as a human being, just to be able to sort of unlearn all the things that you take in as a child. I think that's actually been one of the great joys in my life of, of recent years is to be able to go, oh, I don't have to carry that with me anymore. I can just put that down. And just to be able to sort of say, oh yeah, maybe not, maybe not. I remember a couple of years ago, when the Bible was 800 years old, the New Testament, they were doing a, a reading of the Bible, reading the whole thing from start to finish, the whole New Testament, and I played Jesus. What? <laughs> How did I not know this? <laughs> it, was, it was about five years ago, and I thought, oh, well, because I'm sort of, you know, not I was brought up Catholic, but I'm not so religious anymore, I thought, no, I don't really want to do that. And then I thought, you know what, I have never really read the Bible 
you know, from start to finish. And what an opportunity to read it. And I read the whole thing through and it's really extraordinary how so much of the things you think you know about what the Bible says, you actually don't know. And it, it seems so extraordinary to me that reading this thing, which basically says, be kind to one another over and over again. You know, there are some dodgy things in the Old Testament about, you know, slightly <laughs> misogynistic weird things. But in the New Testament, it's just like, do unto others as they would do unto you. And how something has been taken, you know, that expression as Bible. And I remember doing the curtain call and thinking, and this is the word of the Lord. And I remember thinking, or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just a collection of people taking down, <laughs> taking down things and going, yeah. And then to sort of take that as gospel, take the gospel as Bible or the Bible as gospel seems to be so extraordinary. And that's the thing I think really that terrifies me the most in life, the idea that, you, that something is completely immovable and that there is no deriving from the truth of something that was said. I find that terribly frightening. You bring up the Bible there, and you mentioned that you were raised Catholic. Yeah. How did it feel then taking on the role of the hot priest? Did it bring up stuff from your childhood? Did you feel a sense of guilt almost? I know you're not practicing yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah, but... it didn't. Because we were doing some quite subversive things in the church, you know, it's quite weird. Even to film in a church is quite weird because, you know, you have people there with their sandwiches and the boom and the mics and all the equipment, and you think, oh, this is quite an extraordinary thing to do in a church. So to do what we did in the church did seem a little uh, <laughs> seem a little transgressive. But no, I think I'd put a lot of my rage and my questioning about the church I put that down and actually and talking to Phoebe when we were first talking about this character so much of the unhelpful thing attitude towards people in the church on screen or in drama to my mind comes from extremism to talk about the sort of evil of the church which of course exists but what we were interested in is to sort of explore a man who is a genuine human being who's actually a very good person and who likes his job and is good at his job and gets a lot of solace and joy from being a good priest but that begs the question you know what happens when something really threatens that which is his real genuine almost instant love for this person and what happens when you feel that you are desexualized, you know, something that I've often felt, which is that I don't think it's possible to desexualize any human being. I think that's a great danger. So to be able to explore that was really, really exciting, you know, because everybody has an attitude towards sexuality, whether you're practicing or whether you're asexual or, or not, whatever, you have an attitude towards it. And I think the most insidious thing for me about growing up in Catholic Ireland was that you were not allowed to speak about it. You weren't allowed to think about it. You weren't allowed to mention it, not just as, as a gay person, but any people of, of any sexual orientation. I think it's incredibly damaging. And I think in a way it's led to the people's obsession in, in a sense with sex, you know, in these days. Well, talking of obsession, people are obsessed with Fleabag. Yeah. How has that been for you being part of it? I'm sure you're incredibly grateful and it's wonderful, but... Is it also a bit weird? <laughs> what a great question. No, do you know what? It's not weird. I've, I've been in things before which have thought, that's weird. I can't believe people love this this much. Um, Hamlet. <laughs> yeah, kidding, kidding. Like, exactly. <laughs> what are they into this? A load of nonsense for it. No, it's, um, I find it comforting actually that people like it so much because it is about messiness in our life and that things manifest themselves in the world in such a surprising way. Love manifests itself. It's one of the reasons I loved Call Me By Your Name. I loved the the physical juxtaposition of those two people. That you think th that it isn't just these two people who look similar to each other that fall in love. I loved that idea that if people fall in love or are attracted to things that are completely the opposite and that love manifests itself in, in a really extraordinary way and that somebody who can be sexually frank doesn't have to look dress in quote-unquote provocative clothing or that, that life is wears a disguise so much of the time. And the fact that that's been recognized, not just here, but really in America, they really go for it, is wonderful to me. Because I've always believed that comedy is no less an art form because it's funny, you know, because you can smuggle so many transgressive and progressive ideas through comedy. And I think Phoebe really does that. What was it like wearing priest clothes? Weird. <laughs> I didn't like it. I, I played a priest once before in, in a Ken Loach film a couple of years ago. And I played one, actually, I've played a few priests in my time on the stage. And not for any particular reason. You just, you know, I like a bit of tailoring. So I just wanted to sort of take in the sleeves and like shorten the trousers. 
<laughs> is, there, is there a Fleabag WhatsApp group where every time you get nominated for an award, <laughs> there are lots of like balloon emojis? <laughs> exactly. No, but you know, we, we maybe should do that. There is a little WhatsApp group, actually. But that, you know what? It makes it so much fun because they're all such a lovely gang of people. Because sometimes going to those award shows, it's actually not fun. It sort of appears like fun, but it is. It's kind of quite stressful. You're a mix between intimidated and it sounds kind of disingenuous to say, but sometimes you just think, I really do not want to get up in front of these people because it's so scary. I mean, maybe that's just me. I, um, there's a shy gene in my body which makes me think I cannot get up in front of all these famous people. And um, so when there when there when there are um, people around, and Phoebe's really good at all that kind of stuff. I think it's something I really admire in her. She really knows how to live and to enjoy the success of something. And I've really learned that from her actually to really just go, yeah, this is great. This is wonderful. Like celebrate it. So you and I have known each other for a few years and you don't know what I'm about to tell you, but um, we had lunch in LA a while back and it was when I was single and our mutual friend John Butler was trying to set me up with someone who came along to the lunch. Yes. Who showed no interest in me and I had no interest in him because you and I ended up sitting next to each other and I had the most delightful time because I was chatting to you. And it was so nice. And I came out of that lunch and I said to John, I was like, basically, Andrew Scott's my ideal man. (laughs) He's he's charismatic. He's funny. He's kind. He's witty. He's like hench, but not too much that it looks like he's an obsessive workaholic. Yeah, I, I came away just thinking... Oh, it's just such a shame that's not going to happen. Um, but what I love about your role in Fleabag is that everyone else has seen that. And I think Phoebe said you have the charisma of 10 people in one. She did say that. What a thing to say. My God, I'll take Depends that. which 10 people, I guess. <laughs> exactly. That's very true. Which 10? Do you feel charismatic? Oh, wow. Um, I'll tell you what I feel now is that I feel more authentic. I think what troubled me for a while, I've got to say, was a lot of the parts that I played when I was, I think probably it's, I think it's no mistake really. I think when I was a little bit uh, less comfortable with myself, I played quite sort of freakish characters. I was attracted to them. It's a really weird thing. I can see now that I kind of use the parts that I've played. And even when I started acting, I was always very confident about kind of turning stuff down even when I had no work and to be able to explore parts of my personality through my work. I think I kind of used it as a, because I think maybe I was hiding a little bit myself. I used my work to be able to really express myself. So when I was in my early twenties, I had quite an innocent little face and then played lots of great parts in the theater. But then what sort of started to happen was I was really drawn to like those kind of villainous characters became sort of what I was known for, certainly on screen. And that was exciting and there was a way to do that and you could be audacious and, and oh my God, I'm very grateful for it. But after a little while, I definitely felt like, you know, that's so far away from who I am as a person. So it began to trouble me a little bit that that sort of more humane side of me wasn't coming out. And I felt like in a way that acting for me is such a way of telling the truth. It's the lie that tells the truth, I always think. I really wanted to play... Um, love and romance and I don't know stuff that's a little closer to myself something I'm I'm really fascinated by is storytelling and how we think we're very sophisticated as adults you know we think like when we tell children stories that they're so they absorb them so well and actually as adults we really do the same thing because it's such an interesting thing about casting that if you tell somebody if you create a story that's where you say that person is really scary and you use them very sparingly, and then they arrive. And people, when you meet them on the street, go, oh my God, there's that kind of scary person. And if you tell the person, particularly through the female gaze, as it happened in food, that that person is attractive, or that they have a, a certain charisma about them, and they believe you, you know. So, you know, we're very susceptible to storytelling. We really are, particularly when it's really good storytellers like Phoebe or whoever else it is. So in a way, it's storytelling and in a way, it's me. So it's nice that that can exist. But to me, acting is to explore lots of different parts of yourself with real fearlessness, but still remain intact. You're still OK. So you can really go there. So I've always found great joy in that. 
you're so good at answering questions. You, are, <laughs> you answer questions like a storyteller because you start off and then it goes somewhere and you don't know how it's connected to the thing that you've asked and then it comes round in the most profound way. <laughs> well, do you know what? I have a terrible habit of not finishing sentences. I really, I really... There we there, go. I did that nice. on purpose. I did that on purpose. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I really do. I go off in lots of, um, lots of, lots of uh, things. So I'm glad I finished that sentence eventually. Let's talk about your failures. Okay. So your first failure is going back a few years. It's your failure at a drama competition for children aged 10. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason I say that is because it really affected, it's still, you know, it's interesting that you're talking about awards and stuff. And it sort of speaks to me about reviews and all that kind of stuff, which is competition in children, particularly in, you know, art. So when I was a kid in Dublin, it's something that a lot of people from Ireland, actually m- maybe around England a little bit as well. There's a competition called the FESH, which is the Irish word for festival. And what you do is that there are, are various categories. So you could have poetry under 10, you could have drama under eight. You could have literally 100 children get up and say the same poem. So it's completely torturous for uh, the parents. And they get up and say a poem in a very brightly lit kind of hall in May. And there's no atmosphere in the hall. And they, there's an adjudicator at the top of the hall in front of the stage with her little pen. And she's usually a, quite a prim uh, woman in her late middle age. And they pull back the curtain and they say, competitor number 10, an extract from Romeo and Juliet, Juliet speaking. And somebody comes out and it's somebody in their mum's nighty, <laughs> you know, wailing, whatever. And then you do a bit like that. It's the most extraordinary thing. It's really my first taste of creating an atmosphere where there really is no atmosphere. <laughs> you know, it's not an atmosphere. You can see the audience. You know, there's usually someone's brother or sister, or toddler making loads of noise. But if you could create an atmosphere in that place you know, it was a real, real achievement. You would be terrified going in. You know, usually your mum would be there and, you know, there'd be people from other sort of drama classes or there'd be people from your own class. And and then she'd get up at the end and she'd say, and these are the people that I'd like to recall. And then you'd have to go up and do another little poem or whatever. And then there'd be third place, second place and first place. So my very first experience of probably even being on the stage myself, I had to do, pretend to be a cowboy uh, he was w- walking through and he was really, th- really thirsty. And when he sees this oasis and he goes, oh my God, it's amazing. And I remember I had to take off my my jeans and my, 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 my it's kind of creepy when you think about it now, and jump into this pretend oasis. This is such a challenge. Such, <laughs> such a challenge. I mean, when I think about it anyway. So I got to the thing and it was all going really well. And I think I really had found real liberty because I was a really shy child. I had a lisp. And so... So I found acting really, I don't know, I didn't find it really hard when once I was kind of on the stage and I practiced it and it was all going really, really well. Then I saw this oasis. I was like, oh my God, it was like a cowboy. <laughs> and I tried to pull down my jeans and my jeans that I was wearing, it was probably 1988, were so tight. <laughs> I felt like they just stopped at my thighs and I just couldn't move them. And I hadn't obviously just practiced. <laughs> practiced. <laughs> And they were there for ages and like on it went and I had no idea at that stage what to do. You know, you just don't take off your jeans. That's that's what you would do now. You just could jump into this fake oasis (laughs) (laughs) with your jeans on. But for some reason I thought, no, you have to have the jeans over or else like why would would this cowboy get in, you know, and wreck these jeans? So on it went. Minute one, minute two. (laughs) You just went in your pants. No, like no, no. Half down. <laughs> yeah. So I was trying to pull the pull, pull them, pull them on, and then like got one leg off, one leg off, and, and so on it went. I mean, can you imagine the the mums in the audience? They must have been in hysterics laughing. But for me, it was absolutely mortifying, excruciating. I could feel it going up in, in, into my face, blah 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 blah. And then eventually, I think I got them, <laughs> I got them off. And then I went on. I continued, blah blah blah. And I came off with that sort of sucker punch thing of going, oh no, oh no, no, no. And so, of course, I got, I think maybe I wasn't placed or whatever. It was really devastating to me, you know, when you're a kid and people go, and you think, I did this really well. I know that I, you know, had I not done that, you know, it was just something, I think she might have mentioned it in my adjudicator's report. And then on it goes, so every year you did one and then like you go and you do Richard III when you're 16 and under 16. And I remember in those competitions, sometimes you do really, really well. I remember another one very particularly where, where I knew it was really good. I knew what I was doing was good. And the adjudicator, I remember, I could sense that she just for the first 
two minutes of what I was doing. She was finishing off the report of the previous kid. And I, I remember thinking, she's not looking. She's not, I know she's not looking at me. And I came off and I was like, oh, she wasn't looking at what you were doing. And I got placed third or something. And so all that idea of competition in acting in one way was exciting and it teaches you about acting in a certain way. But in another way, I think it's quite dangerous because I do see the worthlessness actually of everybody liking you and mm. you being first. Sometimes I've been got really good reviews for stuff that I thought was okay. And sometimes things are praised that are completely dependent on who that adjudicator is that might be writing an adjudicator's report for somebody else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That you do see that it's filtered through whoever that person, whoever the panel are on awards jury or whoever the the journalist is or whatever it is of course it has to be filtered through but that's not the way they're viewed and sometimes I think the old saying of no prizes no punishments is a really interesting one and I do think that the way we look at the way art is judged could be a bit more interesting I think of course it's about selling you know whatever the product is that old cliche where people say it's just a thrill to be nominated when people say that and actually do you know what it really is because what anybody wants I don't know if you, you find that in your field but what everybody wants is to feel I was included in that I was included in one of the people who made a bit of a difference during the year in so for example with Fleabag yeah I do feel really proud of that I do feel it was a very special thing that deserves to be recognized if somebody thought that something was slightly better than that, that doesn't really matter. I just think just putting things in and saying, let's celebrate uh, loads of things in, in a slightly different way might be more still as entertaining because that's what an award show for the most part is. And not just this idea of the best, the second best, the third best. And, oh, that's a failure if you didn't win. And, you know, even the way we talk about success is very much they won that, they did that. I don't know. I question awards and reviews, even though it's something like all artists, you do feel seen when you go, oh my God, that's really exciting. Yesterday when, when we got nominated for awards, I was delighted because you think, oh my God, they're really seen it. And when you do that with people that you admire, it's cool. But I know that feeling of being ignored at, at awards. And I know that I felt, oh, maybe in the past, oh, maybe that wasn't as good as I thought it was. So for any of the other actors who don't get nominated, it doesn't, I really think that good work genuine good work goes beyond awards. I don't think anybody really remembers who won what. I don't think, do you? I mean, I mean, I remember what I won. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping a constant tally. <laughs> yeah. No, but you're do, right. But do you you're think right. other people would? Do you think? Only because I keep telling them. No, uh, <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's quite interesting that this year has seen the awarding of two notable prizes in a different way. So the Booker Prize went to two winners. Yeah. The Turner Prize was jointly shared amongst the four. Mm. I find those end of year lists really annoying. Well, it's reductive, isn't it? Yeah. Reductive. And I also totally agree with you with that profound lesson that you learned age 10, that people bring their own stuff to it. There's yeah. always so much other stuff going on. Yeah. There's the politics as well. Yeah. There's the kind of politics of adjudication yeah. plus that person might be the friends of the other person and all, and, yeah. and they bring their own cultural history to yeah. it. I think what it is, is that it's like, you're incredibly vulnerable as an artist. You really are really vulnerable. You, you know, there's this new thing where people saying, don't care about what people think about you, which I think is so insidious. It's such an insidious thing to say. It's, of course you care about what people think about you. Of course you do. You shouldn't care what everybody thinks about you, but you do care. And I suppose it's really in touching that. And, you know, I have won a few awards in, in my time and maybe I'm saying that because I have the benefit of going, okay, well, that doesn't really mean anything. And I know that it matters. I still believe that putting yourself out there, whatever you do is really important. And I just hate the idea of people feeling small because of actually quite capitalistic reasons for the most part. I think what perhaps what you're saying is that when you win an award, that's great and it brings the work to more people, but that you shouldn't attach your personal sense of right. self or yeah. worth that's it. to winning it. That's it. And that's a real challenge. I know on the day, it's one of the great things actually about talking to people directly. You know, I love talking to people. People are my great sort of passion in life. And so when somebody says to you, I really enjoyed that, or they write, write you a letter, that is, I mean, as you know, it's the most wonderful thing, you know, to feel like, oh, I've helped in some way. You've connected. Uh, yeah. Tell me more about caring what people think about you, because I think that's so 
interesting and refreshing to hear because a lot of people who listen to this podcast I think would categorize themselves as sensitive or empathetic and actually as an artist like you are you need that you need that breathable layer of skin that allows people in and that you can connect with other people but how do you cope with that then do you have strategies in place I don't have strategies I am definitely susceptible to that I definitely care what people think I suppose what I want is to tell the truth. I really do want to be able to tell the truth. And I think it's important that it costs me. You want to say what's really true to you. So when people dismiss you or they they slag off the way you look or the way you act or whatever it is, that does hurt me. But that's the game that I'm in. And I, I do find it troubling now. I suppose it's about identity and people finding their identity as individuals. And if you believe in yourself, that's the main thing. And I don't know. I think it's really important to be able to listen to the right people with an open heart. And sometimes it's certainly my biggest challenge. You know, it goes down to the nature of coolness, which I've always found disgusting. The idea of somebody being cool. (laughs) Just going back for a minute to that audition age 10 in the drama competition where you're struggling to get your jeans off. Mm. Was your mum in the audience? Oh, yeah, yeah. And what did she say afterwards? I would say during it, she was probably, her head was probably under her jumper. And she would get very nervous for things like that. But she would have been great at saying, no, it's okay, you did really well and all that. Both my parents were very good at knowing what each of us were, were good at. You know, I was very sensitive as a kid, very sensitive. When I think about it, I used to like, I used to be able to watch um, <laughs> Children in Need or anything like that, or uh, <laughs> comic relief, because I would just be bawling. My, I just couldn't cope with the fact that I remember her bringing me into her bed when I was, since she'd heard me, and she was, I remember her saying, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. So it's a really weird, um, really weird thing. I think you can be too sensitive, though. I think sometimes you, yeah, you got to go, come on. I ordered pizza last night and uh, the, <laughs> the the guy, I was kind of to buzz him up because I live in, a, in an apartment and uh, he came up and um, he was like, I've got, I've got the pizza and I was like, okay, just buzz up and I buzzed him in and then he rang again. <laughs> he, said, he said, yeah, I'm still here. I said, yeah, just just when you hear the, the thing, just buzz up. And he, he was like, okay, I'm trying, I'm doing my best. And I was like, oh my God, I think he's really angry with me. So I got out his tip and then he came up to me and he had the pizza and he's sort of just staring at me and I handed him the tip. He goes, I don't need your tip. And I was like, oh, Jesus. And I had the pizza. And I couldn't eat that pizza because I thought, I thought, what? I hope <laughs> he's listening. I hope he's listening. <laughs> he's not listening. He hates me. Uh, but, but, uh, but I, you know, it's that really oversensitive thing. And then you just be like, let that go. Like, what? That's got nothing to do with you. You know what I mean? It's fine. Can I tell you something that will make you feel better? Which is that over the weekend, my boyfriend and his 10-year-old daughter made gingerbread people. And there was one particular gingerbread character which had been patterned with icing and he had braces and like little shorts. (laughs) And my boyfriend was like, would you like one? And I was like, oh, I like this little guy. And my boyfriend was like, yes, he's braces. And I was like, I can't eat him. I can't eat him. I can't eat braces. He was like, don't be ridiculous. And he like made me eat braces. And it's still on my mind. (laughs) Emotional over-identification. Yeah, over-identification. I mean, it's something you definitely need. You definitely, you don't get one without the other. You can't do, I don't think you can do what I do well without having. The thing that I always say for that an actor really needs, the two things that you really need is an imagination. I'm really strong. I've definitely got a very strong imagination. God knows that's true. But the other thing that I really think you need is a a sense of humor. Acting without humor is to me it's just bad manners it's terrible the reason i think it's terrible is because i think it's not the way that human beings work and that's what our job is is to recreate what human beings are really really like so the funny things people say when they are in extraordinary circumstances desperate circumstances i just find incredibly moving because it is the one thing you know with my dog or whatever who i adore the thing that separates human beings from animals is our ability to be able to see the absurd i mean it's such a distinct human quality so i definitely feel like you can measure someone's humanity almost by their sense of humor in some ways you know what i mean Mm. it shows this unique thing that we have you know i'm not saying that my dog isn't fun he's able to have fun but he's to be able to recognize the absurdness of life it's one thing that my mom said to me actually i remember i was going through quite a difficult time she wrote me a letter and she said that what you have i'll never forget it 
she said that you have a five star sense of humor, which will lead you well through life. And I, I knew that I had a good sense of humor, but when somebody tells you that, somebody that you love so much, when somebody tells you that, then you sort of become it. You know, that's what we do when we're, we're kids. Encouragement is such an important thing. Both my parents work with young people and so does my sister. They're teachers in various forms. And encouragement, just a little bit of encouragement is so vital. And so many people don't get it. I do these kind of Comic-Con things, you know, where you go and you meet all the fans. And that's why I much prefer to do that than speaking to people on Instagram. And if you just say, even if you just say to somebody, I really like your costume. And people who are, can sometimes be quite vulnerable, even the fact that you're even noticing that they're even wearing a costume can brighten up their day. And I, I don't know, I find it really moving that just that, that's all we need is just a little bit of encouragement. Anyway, that's a point on a tangent there. Good no, point. fellow feeling and encouragement. I love it. Yeah. Y- you're the middle of three children yeah. and your book ended with two sisters. Yeah. Both of whom I've had the joy of meeting. <laughs> yeah. And I've met your lovely mum. He came to her to fail life. She did. Oh my God, she hasn't stopped talking about it. I love her. Yeah. What was it like being in the middle of two sisters? Oh, amazing. Amazing. We're really, really close. Sarah, my older sister, there's only 11 months between us. And Sarah's really big into sport. She's the head of sport at a school. And then Hannah is seven years younger than me. And she's an actor too. And she's very sort of artistic. And yeah, we're very, very close family. They're definitely like my best friends, you know. Your second failure is your failure at Trinity College in Dublin as an academic. (laughs) Tell us more. (laughs) Yes, my academic years. Uh, well, I was at a very, very academic school in Dublin. Like the majority of people, I think 90% of the people, maybe even 95% went on to third level education were, you know, very clever guys. So when it came to third level education, I'd done a, my first movie when I was in my second last year in in school when I was about 17. So uh, sorry to interrupt. Mm. Acting was always something that you wanted to do then. Yeah, it really was. When I was about seven or eight, I used to watch those big MGM films and I just, I just loved it. And then I was taken to these drama classes because I was quite shy and I, I had a lisp. First of all, I was taken to elocution where you had to go because I used to say seashells, seashells because I had quite a bad sort of, it was sort of fine. I grew out of it and I was a bit shy. So mum thought, oh, drama classes would be a way to go. And then I loved it, even though I found it scary. And so then when I was 17, I got my first part in a movie because they came to these drama classes and I got so when it came to leaving school I was already sort of bitten by the bug so I thought the best thing to do would be to go to Trinity College in Dublin which is a very good university in Dublin and study the very secure making and definitely kind of get a job out of degree in drama <laughs> and theatre studies. It's logical. <laughs> it's logical. That's going to that's going to make that's going to be a re- really something to fall back on in times of, of, of uh, poverty. So anyway, I did do that. I got into Trinity when I was there, and it was a very quite academic course, and it's something that I'd never been, I'd never associated. Well, it's, I think it's something that people really forget about. It's something that I say a lot. But when they say, we'd like you to play this part, playing, that's what the requirement is. You're required to be playful. And so when acting is spoken of in this very serious way and why I don't like acting without any sense of humor, I find it irritating because I just think it's not intelligent to approach acting without a sense of play. So anyway, this was a very academic degree. And for some people, I think that might have been quite good for performers. But, you know, it's that thing. I didn't know that I was going to be a performer. I didn't know what way it was going to turn out. But what happened was, like, because this film had come out, I um, I got an opportunity to audition at the Abbey. And I got these two great parts when I was 18 in the Abbey, leading parts. One of them was John Crowley, great director. And these really leading parts. And my dad, when I think about it now, he used to drive me into the Abbey and I'd go and meet all these kind of brilliant actors. And then he'd wait in the bar afterwards and bring me home. I mean, sometimes, not every night. I wasn't that much of a nerd. Trinity were quite understanding about that I wasn't going to be able to do all my classes and all that kind of stuff. So they said, you know, you can, you know, write a report on, you know, some of these amazing experiences that I was having. So I remember we had the press night of a woman of no importance, which is Oscar Wilde playing, which I was playing one of the leads in. And on that same day, it's incredible what you're able to do when you're young. I had my first year exams. They were quite 
to hardcore those exams. And so anyway, so I'd done that, did the thing, did that summer. That was the whole thing. And then I went back over the summer and I hadn't heard anything from Trinity about the second year and what was going to happen. I hadn't got all the information and all that kind of stuff about what was going to happen. I was like, oh, well, anyway, I'd heard all my friends were going back for this sort of registering of year two of Trinity. And I went into the Samuel Beckett Center and everybody was inside and I took off my trainers you know you had to go in and always take off your clothes and the sort of drama take off your clothes take off your um <laughs> take off jeans. your shoes you not my jeans, jeans I'm, not, I'm never taking my jeans <laughs> off in public again so i went in and i kind of sat in the circle and they were talking about the second year and the tutor he said andrew and i was like yeah he goes, can i speak to you for a second i was like yeah and he took me outside and he said you failed first year what are you doing here you failed i said sorry and he said, yeah, you, you, you failed on attendance. You haven't received any of the bump for second year, have you? I said, no, I haven't. He goes, so in order for you to um, continue into second year, you'll either have to repeat the first year again or take a year out or I don't know, but you've got quite a lot of thinking to do, but I have to go back into the class now and teach the thing. <laughs> so I remember going back out. I remember tying my lace. And my parents didn't know any of this stuff. And I Did was you have like, to go back into the room and put your shoes on? No, I had to go back. Oh, <laughs> that's, well, that's what it was. It was like incredibly fine. excruciating. Yeah. No, I was outside the room and okay. I, where all the other people's oh, shoes were. Thing. And I was like, oh my God, I literally have nothing to do with the, for the rest of my life. I have nothing to do. I had no job. I finished in the theatre and I was like, I'm going to have to tell my parents that <laughs> like, I literally don't have anything to do. So I thought, okay. So I, of course, spun it for them. I was like, I've decided, I think I'm going to take a year out from, you know, because things are, you know, I might get another opportunity in the Abbey. I've got an agent at the time. And I suppose the reason I consider it a failure is that that actually isn't really the failure because actually things worked out fine. And But what the failure I think is, is that I shouldn't have been in Trinity. Sometimes I, I think that having a safety net, which is what that was, because what I failed on was attendance, which meant that I just didn't really want to go. Mm. I didn't want to go. Mm. And I didn't go. And if you, I wanted to go, I would have gone and I would have passed. But actually what I was in some way subconsciously doing was just not doing what I didn't want to do. And so when that happened, even though I was shocked, I was shocked. It wasn't a kind of unpleasant feeling. I was like, okay, now I have to do what I have to do. So now I am an actor. I have to be because I have nothing else to do. So in some way I manifested it, you know. So actually, I suppose what I mean is this idea of having something to fall back on. I've never, if I'm honest, I don't think I've ever thought about failing as an actor because whatever way it would have worked, I was always so passionate about it that I would have made it work. And sometimes I think when you give yourself a get out clause to a certain degree, that's what you do. You get out, you get out of the thing that you don't want to do. And that's for me. That's definitely that's so for me. interesting, though, that idea that a safety net is overrated because yeah. it's a diversion mm. from your passion. You're right. Yeah. Have you ever regretted not completing your degree? No, absolutely not. And not only that, I, I don't because then there was an opportunity Then I thought well, maybe I could go and train properly as an actor. And I've never regretted that. No. And then you were an unnamed corpse in Saving Private Ryan. And I was, yeah. So, then two years later, Tom Hanks was rolling over me in Saving Private Ryan. I mean, in a professional way. <laughs> what, what is it like to have Tom Hanks roll over you? Thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> I was so excited. They filmed that at Saving Private Ryan down in Curriculum Beach. And, and so they had loads of people audition to play the D-Day landings. It was genuinely extraordinary. And he was brilliant. And actually to see, actually see Steven Spielberg was just amazing. Have you met him since? No, but I've worked for him twice because he produced 1917 and he did Band of Brothers as well. I've been in loads of war films. They used to call me the reluctant soldier. Here he comes, the reluctant soldier. <laughs> I uh, read somewhere that the experience of filming Band of Brothers for you was horrible. Horrendous. Hated it. The thing I love the most about acting is having a bit of a laugh with the other actors and everybody was taking it so seriously. I just thought this is, you know, everybody was in character First of all, there were all these real life war veterans were there to sort of keep an eye on you. And you had to call your gun a weapon at all times. And if you said, oh God, I've left my gun in the toilet. <laughs> they'd go, what? And you'd say, oh, I mean, my weapon, my weapon. And you'd have to give them 20 press-ups. Can you imagine how horrendous that was? And also you had to speak in an American accent the whole, the whole time, which I point blank refused to do. Well, even never, offset. Oh, yeah, oh, all that so pretend. Like, like as if in some way that's going to pay tribute to the, the real life soldiers. I just find it insulting and also just kind of stupid and not what I wanted to do. I was like, I'll still do a good job. I just don't feel the, I don't feel the necessity to be method. Okay, that's my thing. 
So I've always been quite, even when I was younger, I've always been quite possessed of what acting is. It's something I've I often talked to Olivia Coleman about, who I feel quite a lot of kinship with. Who's we she? <laughs> oh my gosh, she's such a brilliant, brilliant person. And, but about research and, you know, method acting and all that kind of stuff, which I've never been drawn to. And sometimes in the past, I've been a bit embarrassed by that because you think that people might think that you're lazy or that you don't really care or whatever. But actually for me, it, it feels like that idea of just kind of jumping off the cliff and being playful. So like when kids say, okay, you're the teacher and I'll be the student. The kid isn't going, okay, so where would the teacher have studied? The kid is just like, okay, where are my glasses? Am I, you know what I mean? And And so I feel like that sort of, okay, doing this and knowing as much as the audience doing and just keeping yourself, not ignorant in a willful way, but just understanding what the priority of being an actor is which is igniting your imagination to its fullest and for me that's a very immediate present thing does olivia coleman agree with you yeah she's i've always noticed that about her i mean she's exceptional she's incredibly present as an actor so when the camera is on you don't really see a difference between her and what she's doing and she's able to totally listen to you and it's such an undervalued thing in acting which is your ability to be able to listen and to react to what that's what the audience really wants to see but also i imagine it was funny you being told to call your gun a weapon because in ireland weapon means something yeah so different, like, look at that <laughs> weapon over there <laughs> exactly weapon means well, how should we put it? Ooh, like a some, like a bit of a loser. Yeah, sort of a yeah, a bit of a loser or a bit of a like <laughs> you want to avoid. Explain gee bag. Gee bag. <laughs> That's my favourite Irish expression. Look at that gee bag over there. It's such a great expression, That's isn't so it? So good. A gee bag. I mean, it doesn't even make sense, does it? <laughs> a gee in Ireland, as we know, means a vagina. So ghee butter, you know, is a completely different thing. But a ghee bag is just two things put together. I mean, is a ghee bag an actual thing? A ghee bag doesn't it, doesn't everything basically mean a loser? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Ghee bag. Your third failure, and I'm so glad you've chosen this because it is such an interesting one, is as you put it, your failure to be heteronormative. <laughs> <laughs> How lofty does that sound? Well, I couldn't think of another way to sort of put it. Do you, yeah. And you genuinely consider it a, a failure? I did. I don't, I certainly don't know. But yeah, I did. You know, I, there's so many different ways to live a life in the world. And that feels like there is only one prototype. There's a system that everybody has to live by. And if you don't live by it, you do feel for a while, I did, like I was failing at it, that there's something wrong with me and that there was something within me that wouldn't be complete. Actually, it's quite weird. I was thinking about the word complete the other day, as if the idea is being complete is a good thing. I'm mm. not sure that it is. It's a bit like thinking of life as a race, because yeah. actually the object of a race is to get to the end first. Uh, and why would you want to live life right, like that? Exactly. Like the object of life is not completion, it's the journey to understand. Absolutely. That's why I think that's the thing about the idea of still being able to say, I don't know. Because I think what happens is that people get to, you know, 35 and go, now I know. And I know because I've got a mortgage and I have to fucking know. And so now what I'm going to do is because I know is I'm going to turn on Netflix and I'm just going to stop learning. And I find that really, really terrifying. So, so the idea of being complete makes me want to go to sleep for three weeks. I just think, oh God, what am I going to do? So like, you should always be incomplete in a way. But I suppose that's what my feeling was, is that if I don't live my life in a particular way, that I am a failure. One of the things that I have found difficult to do, and I feel really, oh, I feel so joyful about the fact that I've emancipated myself from this. And that's not the Catholic Church, because I actually stopped going to church really when I was, you know, in my teens. But actually, it's a kind of a Catholic culture, which I feel I can see both the good and bad side of now. And it's that idea of clubability, which is a wonderful thing in one way, because it means makes for great community. But being individual is a difficult thing to do within Catholic culture. So to sort of have the courage of your convictions and realize, you know, if you're living an artistic life and for a long time, I found it kind of almost shameful to even say I'm, I'm an artist, which now I really don't. I like, that's what I do. And so for that reason, you have to be aware of your own spark of divine fire. And actually that's 
seems to me more spiritual to sort of recognize that that's your nature. That's my nature is to sort of have an, an individual viewpoint in the world. And that's what's going to be of value to the world. But that's a difficult thing to do within that culture, I think, sometimes, because, of course, you don't want to be somebody who has notions, as we say in Ireland, you know, notions of operosity about themselves. And that's been a big struggle of mine. And then the other thing, I suppose, when I say heteronormative, I don't mean that as an anti-heterosexual thing to say, because I do find it a little bit worrying at the moment. It's a sort of trend among left-leaning people, for the most part, is to say straight white male now, as if it's a kind of thing that it's okay to sort of slag off a whole section of the community. And to my mind, the answer is not to start a new prejudice against a certain fraction of the community in order to balance out a prejudice against another section of the community. I certainly see that the straight white male has held a lot of the power, but a lot of straight white males are wonderful people. For the majority of people, most people's dads are straight males. And I just feel that can be kind of incendiary. But I suppose... Having said that, my life is different now. I feel like my attitude towards relationships and my attitude towards myself and sexuality and all that kind of stuff has really changed. That came about really from having the courage to sort of be on my own for a while, which I think for me was quite a scary thing to do. So... Was your perception of heteronormative having a long-term stable relationship? Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, first of all, it was like being having a wife and kids. And then it was to have a, a long, stable relationship where, you know, you meet and you date and you then move in together and then that's what you do. And who's to know what's going to happen in the future? And it's not to say that that isn't on the cards for me or could potentially be, but... It's that you don't have to do that, that there are other things that you can do and actually finding your own happiness. When I lived on my own for the first time, I found it really difficult and it was a very sad time in my life. I feel proud in a sense that I've had the courage to spend some time with myself because it certainly wasn't easy. And I'm really glad that I did that. But I definitely felt like, why am I putting myself in this situation? I think that there's... Personally speaking, a problem that I have with a lot of the language around sexuality, Mm. the idea that you come out, for me, implies a sense of critique or like defensiveness or because actually I'm people are. Absolutely. (laughs) And so I feel like the questions I'm about to ask are probably going to be quite inelegantly phrased, but... At what point were you aware within your family that you weren't going to have wife or kids? Mm. And did you feel that you needed to tell them or did you, what did you, how did you feel? Well, first of all, I just agree with you so much about the language. There are two other things that I I absolutely cannot bear being described as openly gay. Yes. (laughs) He's openly gay. Don't say, oh, that person, oh, no, that's it's openly Irish. It's, it, it, it's, as I say, it's two steps from shamelessly or, you yeah. know, you know what I mean? Shamelessly gay, openly gay. He's you know, not so. even embarrassed. <laughs> He's not even embarrassed. <laughs> well, as a, you know, it implies some defiance mm. that, you know, if you, it's also something that you only ever hear in the media. Nobody ever says, this is my openly gay friend, Darren. So true. You, nobody ever says it. You don't, yeah. you don't, you, it's such a, a weird, weird expression. Anyway, I could go on for ages about that. The other one is casual sex. Right. <laughs> I've never even thought to question it, but now I... Well, I suppose yeah. there's a judgment in it in some way, yeah. which is the idea like, what is their semi-formal sex? Yeah. And then there's black tie sex. <laughs> and the black tie sex is the one that you should be having because that's the most sort of meaningful one. Can you imagine smart casual sex? <laughs> oh smart God, casual sex would not be fun. <laughs> no. Because what way are you going to be? You're exactly. sort of, a, you're, you're, you're a rose between two What's thorns. Okay, then. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, semi-formal. But yeah, like the idea that casual sex can't, you know, you can't extract any kind of meaning yes. from casual sex. I think that's really dangerous because yeah. because it, it invokes shame in people. And actually I, you get so much meaning. If like both of us, I think, have had quite similar experiences. I was in long-term relationships all of my 20s. Yeah. And when I became single post-divorce, mid-30s, mm. sorry, parents, I had loads of casual yeah, sex. Yeah. And it was incredibly it's meaningful. important for me to it, do that. It's really important. And that's what I mean, this idea of sex shaming people about this, about sort of categorizing what's important. You learn from people. It's not about the length of time you spend with somebody. In a way, that's what Fleabag is about, is that you can have incredibly potent lifelong effects from meeting somebody over two weeks 
or one week or, you know, three hours. You can go, oh my God, I was, that brought out, I learned something. I learned something. And I think if you're going through that situation where you're having casual sex with people, sometimes that's what you need to do. What was really important to me was to understanding our own sexuality or who you are or what you like was such um, a taboo, really. And you have to be able to make mistakes and you have to find out who you are because it's such an important part of who we are and it has to be talked about. Esther Perel is somebody who is a great hero of mine. and She says this great thing, which is in at the beginning of long-term relationships, is to bring your kinks early. I think it's such a wonderful mm. thing to... I think she's a hero. I, f- I really think she's a real hero to be able to speak about sex in such an open and kind and generous way. And that idea that love and sex have to be merged in some way and that that can be troublesome is is so wonderful to me that actually, because what can sometimes happen, isn't it, is that people find once they're sort of three years in, they go, oh, I can't really say that now. Because they might think I've been hiding that. And it's so different than the community. So the culture of the relationship has been something completely else. And then you have to, so that idea of, of saying, yeah, this is what I, opening that up kind of quite early because everybody has a preference. It's not saying, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to be a sexual extremist. It just means to sort of have an understanding in the same way you have taste in what kind of furniture you might buy that you go, this is what I like. You don't have to laminate it. It's not like, you know, it's fluid. <laughs> you could laminate it. <laughs> you know, for, anyway. No judgment. Um, <laughs> no judgment. But that you go, this is, this is a starting off point and to bring that up. Anyway, so to answer your question, yeah, that was very frightening to me when I was young. Yeah, it was frightening to me that I wasn't going to be able to be that person. And I think what happened for me when I was all around that time when I was working 1920, 21, I was very abstemious on that front. I didn't really have a sex life. And what I became was a very good person, (laughs) which is a real, in order to combat, balance out this deep shame I have, they maybe won't notice that if I become a really good friend, I'm a nice person and blah, blah, blah. And it's such a dangerous thing for a young person to have to feel and go through, you know, to equate goodness with almost like virginity. It's very, it's very troubling because it's very Catholic. It's very Catholic. It's very Catholic. Yeah. And I would have, you know, in the arts world and there, you know, there were lots of gay people around and, but it was something that, that I definitely did. So the journey traveled and that catches up with you. That caught up with me, you know, that feeling of, Somebody described it to me once as being able to speak a language fluently, to be able to speak it, to know that you can speak something really fluently and never speaking it. And I think that's what happens certainly for a lot of gay people is that they come out and that all they do is speak the language for, for you know, a period of time. And it, that's, that's, you can go down a, a kind yeah. of wrong path. But there's nothing wrong with if, if you haven't been able to do that. It's a, a sex is communication like a language and so you want to be able to speak it and sometimes you want to speak it a little more than you do and you know you want to you know Vanessa to sort of extend the metaphor too much so the idea of being open and you know the marriage referendum in Ireland you know I've often said it was like literally that one of the happiest days of my life the emancipation of Ireland on that front is so incredible to me and you know my own I really do feel my own emancipation and to be you know even to be able to talk to you today about these things which is something that I never would have dreamed of you know of both those having a career and being able to play all sorts of different parts gay straight whatever blah 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 that was a real fear of mine so I do feel proud of the you know it's work I've had to work hard um, on, on my own sometimes a lot. I feel so proud and, I, and I'm so honored that you're talking about it thank you and oh I think God, it's gonna my pleasure the idea of this whole podcast is so fascinating to me and it's you know it's an act of heroism I really don't say that lightly because people need that people success is always spoken backwards and we never talk about the time you know you go you did that and you did that and you never talk about those really uncertain times where you go I have no idea where I'm going or what I'm, I'm going to do and that idea of vulnerability which is the great magical word of genuinely embracing that and saying you know I don't know I have no idea that's the mark of a really great human being and an art, a great mm. artist. I'm going to cry, so I'm going to ask you something else. Which is that, um, Go ahead and cry. Yeah. Uh, when you told your family about your fluency in this particular language, yes. yeah. I remember reading something that you said about how it's actually a real gift because you go to these people that you love and say, this is me, am I still accepted? Yeah, I absolutely think that. I think it's something that I've been given that maybe a lot of straight people haven't been given that idea of, 
It's something I say a lot, but it means a lot to me that I remember writing when I was about 20, I heard the expression, my burden has become my gift. And I remember just thinking, wow, wouldn't that be amazing? This burden that I feel, you know, daily could be something that actually I'd feel this is something I've been given that I love. It's a gift that I love. And it's absolutely something that I feel now. I mean, if I could press a button, I wouldn't press it, if you know what I mean. And I think that comes with the fact that if you go around at a very young stage in your life and you say to the people who matter most with a real sense of fear and vulnerability, this is who I am, I hope you still love me. And they say, yes, we do. You experience in a felt way, genuine, unconditional love because your biggest fear at a young age was put away. And that's something that not a lot of people get to experience as kind of scary and everything as it was. I feel so grateful for it because I know, and I learned it early, more to the point, that these people actually really love me. And for the people who didn't respond, and I have to say positively, I have to say, in my experience, I was really lucky. There was very, very few people who uh, certain who said, I'm sorry, get, pack your bags or anything like that. So I feel incredibly lucky to have been given that sort of armor. Armor is the wrong word, but support at such an early age. And it's the kind of scaffolding that you can make the building out from, you know, from then, even though it's taken a long time. But, you know, as great as everything is, I, I hope, you know, I'm in a good, really good place in my life at the moment. But I love the idea that in a year's time, there's going to be a whole lots, lots of new stuff that I'll know that I don't know now. And I think that kind of comes from having a job that's very inconsistent because you really don't know. I have no, like for next year, for example, I don't really know what I'm going to be. You're doing Tom Ripley. Yes. I'm so excited <laughs> yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, well, that's true. I am going to be doing that. The yes. Tangent of Mr. Ripley is one of my favourite films oh, of all the most time, ex- and I love the novel. Oh, yeah, right. The scripts are genuinely extraordinary and uh it's a really wonderful part but like you know I'm, I'm sort of i've been really lucky to play all these kind of quite iconic literary characters hamlet and moriarty from the conan doyle and now tom ripley and i feel like it's really interesting just delving into how people describe him sociopathic or psychopathic or you know you know talking about his sexuality that he must be this and and actually, the great challenge of it really is to go, no, not listening to that. No, I'm not. I, I have to decide what it is. I, I'll, I'll decide if he's a... You, you mm, actually do mm. have to become quite bulgy. <laughs> to well, be, that's so interesting yeah. because actually Patricia Highsmith barely describes him. That's Ab- what makes absolutely. him so chilling. Absolutely. And so people want to go, well, I mean, he's... Isn't he gay, that character? Somebody was sort of trying to, in a way, praise me. They said, you're the first openly gay actor to play this character. And I was like, right, what's that going to do with anything? You know, you're saying that he's the character is gay. You can't make that assumption just yet. Of course, that idea of his sexuality is fascinating. But, you know, I, you've got to sort of, if I'm taking charge of that character, I've got to be really, let me, let, let's just let, mm. you kind of just not listen. The reason that that character is so wonderful is that you're on his side. He's the hero. And you want him to succeed. And to me, it speaks of otherness. That's what it's about. It's about that. Yeah, exactly. That feeling where you go, I am not invited to that party. Yes. You know know what I mean? That's what it is. Yeah. And I love the rebranding of this word queer. Queer, when you just used to describe somebody as queer, when we grew up in Ireland, it was really, it was not a nice expression. You'd think it was a slur, a gay slur. And I love this rebranding of the word queer, which means to me, somebody who is kind of undefinable that you can't really say there's something just I can't really work that person out and that's I think at the center of of her work but she's also you know her contemporaries say about Highsmith that she's probably the most you know she's the greatest of all the crime writers so she's got this incredible skill in fact I I, I don't even know she was this extraordinary person used to carry around stones in her pockets and And snails and snails in her bra and like she was amazing and you know she has a sort of you know very particular attitude towards women herself you know I don't know if now she would describe her as sort of non binary so there's definitely loads of stuff to be explored in there and uh yeah so i've got to be a bit like wait we'll just decide you know you gotta because if you're gonna put your stamp on it you've got to put your own stamp on it and not try and please everybody all the time yeah Andrew Scott, I could talk to you for weeks and <laughs> likewise, weeks likewise. on end i've got one final question what did you do with that pizza last night oh i ate it but i ate oh, it with, okay. a, with a little bit of sorrow in my heart <laughs> and a tiny bit of catholic guilt 
What lovely toppings. Exactly. <laughs> what lovely, lovely topping. A topping of sorrow and a smattering of confession. <laughs> Andrew Scott, you are wonderful. Thank uh, you. Likewise. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. This episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day is sponsored by Secret Spa, all your favourite beauty and wellness treatments at home. Where the Salon Fails Secret Spa can deliver with appointments available every day from 7am to 10pm. And the best thing is you can book just a few hours in advance. It's perfect for people like me who can't squeeze their treatments into their working day. There's none of the hassle of travelling. You get to do it all in the comfort of your own home. If you're a mum, you can have it while your kids are sleeping next door. If, like me, you're a cat owner, you can have it with your cat purring nearby. There's a range of treatments. Secret Spa offers everything from massage, facials, nails, waxing, lashes and brows. You can book as many treatments as you like in one appointment and you can be assured that all the therapists of excellent quality because Secret Spa meets and tests every single one personally. And I can attest to that. I had a manicure from Secret Spa. The lovely Pam came and made my hands look amazing. So thank you very much, Secret Spa. Secret Spa now covers all of London and Manchester. And for an exclusive 15% off your first booking, use the code HOWTOFAIL, or one word, on Secret Spa's mobile app or at secretspa.co.uk. Thank you very much to Secret Spa. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.